1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can follow me on Twitter, at Davis Matic. In this episode of the show, I had the pleasure to be joined by Ryan Paganetti. Ryan spent several years working for the Philadelphia Eagles, including the year that they won the Super Bowl. And uh, to be honest, this is the most forthcoming conversation I have ever heard With someone who worked inside the NFL, particularly the analytics department, Uh, Ryan had a lot of good stories from inside the Eagles coaching staff, but also just in general about how the NFL works, how analytics staffers communicate with the coaches, how coaches reciprocate with the analytics staffers. So I, I thought it was a very good conversation. And then, of course, Ryan is also a member of Laser Eyes Twitter. So we got into some Bitcoin and some crypto stuff at the end of the show. And then even how NFL players are interacting with uh, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So I, I think this is a great episode of the show. Of course, you guys need to follow Ryan on Twitter. If you want to support this show, you can leave a rating or review on itunes you can also subscribe to the show to get bonus episodes on patreon.com slash take cast now let's go ahead and get into the episode all right everyone welcoming into the show ryan paganetti he is a former coach and member of the analytics department for the philadelphia eagles my friend kevin cole who has been on the show. Uh, I believe you guys did a show together last week and he reached out to me and he was like, dude, you got to have, you got to have this guy on the show. He's perfect for the podcast, loves, loves the analytical side of the NFL, loves crypto. So I think we will have uh, a very good conversation in coming. So I guess we should start here. And, and again, also, let me make clear to everyone, Ryan would maybe like to work again, in the uh the nfl someday so we're, we're not going to bag on anyone too hard we're not going to give away any uh huge trade secrets but we we're, he's going to give us what he can and so i think we should start with why don't you just talk a little bit about what your role with the eagles was when you worked there
0: right so um basically i started out first of all thanks for having me on like this is pretty fun and i'm excited to talk talk about crypto uh in particular you know there's some crazy shenanigans going on with crypto i know Last night we went over fifty thousand on Bitcoin. This morning, like Visa bought a CryptoPunk. Like, there's some, there's some really interesting things going on. But, um, yeah, like, so I, uh, I got started there in 2015, and um, I technically started out kind of as like an analyst, and um, I really was sort of like doing analytical type things, and that was in Chip Kelly's last year. And I was fortunate um, when they made a coaching change. You know, I got retained and. They actually kind of had a sort of more of like a coaching hybrid role for me, where I was like really actively with the coaches on a daily basis. Um, and that was good for me because just like building up a knowledge base on the coaching side of things, like it, 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 very technical, very complicated. And like the more knowledge I had on the, on the really football X and no side, like the better analysis I could do from an analytics perspective. So I was sort of in that hybrid role and, um, I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, it was, it was cool because, you know, I, I got to be up in the booth with coach Peterson and, you know, I would sort of provide these, uh, you know, I'd give him sort of information and data throughout the course of the game on like strategies or things to do, or how are we going to handle this situation? You know, over the course of a week, I would give him different resources for like game planning or over the course of like an off season, I would do certain projects for different coaches of like ideas of how maybe this is maybe something we could add to the playbook from here's something we can maybe, a scheme that we could change or here's a situation that maybe we could handle differently. And it really was like a dream job and it was a ton of fun. And the best part about it was like coach Peterson was like very um, receptive and open to it. And like, I could just say some outrageous stuff to him. And he would like, at the very least, like he would listen to it. And I'd like try to go state my case. It'd be like, I'd be like, Hey, if it's third and 15, we should, you know, run, you know, balls down the sideline on our sideline and try to force, just just throw a ball up and and try to create a pass interference situation and have everyone on our sideline complain. And like, I bring up things like that and he's like, yeah, or no, we're not doing that. But just like, just the the fact that he was so open to different ideas I think was great because ultimately he was very receptive to fourth downs and um, two point conversions. We did some stuff with like quarterback sneaks and um, ultimately, you know, we had a ton of success in 2017. And um, I think that sort of like set off the whole analytics movement Um, For the rest of the league, because a lot of times, you know, when a team wins the Super Bowl, everyone else is kind of just um, taking a hard look at like how that team succeeded and like trying to take certain ideas from them. And if you look from really 2017 until now, um, the frequency at which fourth down attempts is occurring, the frequency at which uh, two point attempts is occurring is so much higher to the point where like if you were the most aggressive team in the league in 2017, like you might be average right now, which is like a crazy change over the course of three years. Um, and I think more and more, you're going to see more analytical stuff incorporated in game plans. It's a little bit more complicated, I think, because, um, you know, the, I think that the, there's more to do with X's and O's and, you know, technical understanding of these coaches. And there's certain things that maybe like an analyst might recommend, but it sort of lacks context on the, uh, schematic side. But I think more and more as time goes by, you're seeing that incorporated more. And, um, it's going to be interesting to kind of see how things go here in the future.
1: So, give like, how would analytics be delved into an actual game plan? Because I, I think this is a very common thing people say, right? They're like, right. oh, that's, that's a very analytics heavy run organization. So, we expect them to be really smart in terms of how they build the roster, how they call their plays, how they establish their game plan. And then, you know, we might look at a team that is viewed uh, like, I don't know if this is still true, but I know for a long time the Los Angeles Chargers didn't have. A analytics department. I think they I think they might have hired a couple guys now. But I remember that being one of the big things from Warren Sharp's football preview book, I think in 2019. He said, Look, the Chargers literally don't have an analytics department. And so then that would lead us to say, Oh, well, that means the Chargers aren't going to be very good and their game plan's not going to be very good. And they're not going to be grinding out the micro edges. But I think we say those things and we just kind of believe them to be true. But especially people on my side of the game where Like, I don't know. I don't know what goes into Doug Peterson's game plan in a given week and how analytics inform those decisions. So kind of how would an analytically found process find its way into a weekly game plan?
0: So I think um, one thing that, you know, viewers might not really understand, but the first day or two after, you know, a Sunday game is really where 90 plus percent of the game planning is occurring. Because ultimately, you like most teams are in a structure where it's like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they'll have practices, but they have to install their schemes. Like Wednesday around the league is typically like, all right, first and second down game planning. Um, Thursday might be like third downs and, and short yardage. And, and uh, so like Friday might be red zone specific. And that's like a pretty standard thing across the league. It's something similar to that but ultimately like you have to come up with the game plan and finalize it like in the days prior to actually like installing it with the players. So um for me in particular, like really uh there was a lot of like off season work of like, all right, here's some general trends, you know, like passing maybe on first and 10, you know, is outperforming running or, you know, doing this from running play action from under centers, outperforming, you know, play action from gun or different things like that, that were like big picture um, trends that, you know, over thousands of plays had popped up around the league. And um, so on a weekly basis, it was more uh, looking specifically at a a certain opponent and like using some kind of data set of uh, something that you felt was like a useful and representative sample for that um, team that you're playing. So to give you an example, like if you were playing the um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers in week one, you're probably really not using much like preseason stuff because it's sort of useless, but right. maybe like if you're Dallas playing against Tampa, you would, you know, analyze the 2020 season for Tampa Bay and take that 1200 to 1300 offensive 1200 to 1300 defensive plays and really try to sift through it and see if there's anything notable that's consistently coming out. And so for me on, you know, early on in the week, or even in, in the the week prior, I would be like spending a lot of time, you know, seeing, if anything statistically really stood out, like, okay, this concept had a really high expected points. This concept had a really high success rate. What's going on here. And for me, it was more um, giving the coaches like ideas. And like, I mean, there would be times like I'd find something and I'd be like, Hey, I made a cut up of all these plays of the giants defending this motion. Like, you know, the production was incredibly high. Like maybe you guys should take a peek at this and see, is there something they're doing schematically that is like something that you guys feel like you can take advantage of. So for me, it really was just cross like doing a sort of like statistical cross check of anything that really stood out. And then, you know, providing these coaches early on, like particularly before they're really game planning and like right. giving them thoughts. And like in particular, there was guys like Frank Reich and um, I'd give him different stuff when he was the offensive coordinator of the Eagles. And he would be so excited when something that came from like a report that I generated matched up with like what he had also like independently seen on the film. And he's like, Oh man, this is like perfect. Like, so I think it it was more just like a something to do to kind of complement the game plan that already was being done. And it wasn't like, I was sitting there saying like, Hey, you must do this, or you must do that. It was more just sort of kind of providing some statistics and providing some, you know, interesting information to sort of trigger ideas for the coaching staff and whether that was like for, you know, game planning against the upcoming opponent or doing certain self scouting things like recognizing things that our team had been good or bad at. Um, those were kind of the main things that were occurring during the season. Um, but that's pretty much a summary kind of, ha- of how that worked out.
1: Yeah. And I think that stuff makes sense. Um, you know, another big question would be like, what's the number one thing that, uh, that people like me, right. Fantasy football, really viewing things from the lens of like, well, we know this one thing works. So why don't teams do this more? That's a huge, huge thing that people like me, right. I've, I've never played football right. at a high level, never coach. And like the the very reductive thing is passes are worth more Yard, like they're yeah. on average, they generate more yards than runs. Play action, very valuable, regardless yeah. of who the running back is. But then you'll hear coaches say things like, "We got to run to set up the pass." Um, we really like using play action with Derrick Henry. We don't like using it so much with Darrington Evans, or we really like using play action with Zeke, but we don't think the defense is as afraid of Tony Pollard. You know, for example, things like that. How often would it come up that you would have to kind of be explaining? a concept like that to a coach. Now, again, I think that we take a very reductive view of these coaches. I think it's very rare for coaches to not actually be qualified for their position. Certainly it happens, right? There are, there are NFL coaches who have their job right now, who I think, uh, you know, a 17 year old who plays a lot of Madden would do a better job than like Freddie kitchens, for example. And you don't have to agree with that or disagree with it or whatever um but like just so the idea of like passes are just worth more expected points they're worth more yards than rushing how would that conversation go between an analytics department and like you know the actual coaching staff
0: so i i think that's always sort of the challenge because a lot of these people have sort of uh to some degree maybe they've been coaching for 30 40 years and they've like made up their mind of like this is how this is how the game is played this is how the the game is won this is how like a strategy is used like play action for example um you know i was always sort of advocating for you know increased play action with our team but um t- it's just that just like an interesting aside on play action it's i think it's a little bit more complicated than the mainstream perspective just because um you know we ran play action at a pretty high clip with philly and we were not good at it like multiple like multiple consecutive years we really struggled with it and that was something even from my perspective that was sort of like an analytics wake-up call because i'm like oh we just you know run a lot of play action we'll be good and we'll just kill people and like we were running it at a high rate and we were just not having much success with it and i think that's got sort of a good example of like really like fine-tuning like okay what play action concepts are you running how are you teaching the offensive line like one thing that i had found and it's almost sort of like subjective is like the best offensive lines or the best play action teams, the offensive mm-hmm. lines were like being taught differently on how to sell the run so much more aggressively. And you could see some of the teams that were, you know, having less success with play action and either maybe like the fake, the running back wasn't very good or the offensive line starts passing very early on. But then you watch the Rams, you watch Kyle Shanahan's offense and like these guys look like they're run blocking. Like it's, it, it's a, it's a much better sell. So like, I think there's a little bit more nuanced take of like finding, you know, specifically how certain schemes have been successful, but, um, one of the biggest, uh, like misrepresentations, I, I think, think yeah, it's very clear, like, yes, passing over running in general is, um, a pretty effective mindset and it's like pretty, it's like fairly valid, but one of the biggest problems with actual passing versus running stats in the current state of the NFL is that there's a very high percentage, not, not a very high percentage, but there is a solid chunk of passes that are only occurring because the run was defended because it's a run pass option play. Right. So if you actually take those plays in the way that most offensive staffs and most defensive staffs would classify that play is that they actually would call it a run. That's how like I've been with a few different staffs and they'll call RPOs runs. And so they'll take the passing production and they'll classify it with, with the run game, if that makes sense. And defensively, like you're preparing, you're like, ultimately our linebackers, our safeties, like they have to fit in their run gaps. And if they don't, then like the ball's going to be handed off. So what you see there is it kind of juices up the, um, the success rate and the expected points a little bit on, um, on the run game, or sorry, on the pass game a little bit, when right. you see like a public analysis say like, Oh, okay. Like this quarterback, you know, had this statistical line. Well, um, At least the way that I would look at it, and the way that the coaches I worked with wanted to look at it, was you know maybe there was twelve of those passes in a game that actually occurred on what they would define as a run. So that would almost, from their perspective, they 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 would want to kind of split off that segment and not include it specifically in the pass game. So because you might realistically, when when a throw was occurring on a on a run pass option play, the completion rate is incredibly high, the success rate is incredibly high, but it's because the throw is only occurring conditionally if it's open, if that makes sense. It wasn't that the offense just strictly called a pass. So I think if you if you sort of um, take a look at those plays, like, I think uh, Kansas City is a good example of they have an incredibly high pass rate. And, like, yes, they are passing. Right. High, but they also are running a ton of RPOs. And so many of those throws are occurring because a team has, for example, stopped the run game. Um, and – it's a, it makes things a little bit more complicated and I'm not sure if there's an easy answer from like a public perspective of how to like quantify that, but it's like an interesting idea to look at. And maybe it's something with like the next gen stats or something that, you know, people can look at the, the run, uh, they can like determine like, all right, the offensive line is run blocking because they've moved this in this direction or this far. And maybe I classify that as a run or an RPO rather than as a pass. And then you sort of like, it got, it gets to the point where you're almost like run versus run pass option play versus pass play exclusively. And then right. that argument is a little bit different. And in particular, our team, we have found like the RPO concepts as in general around the league were very effective for the most part on like normal down and distance situations. So we were running those a ton in particular in like 2017. And um, that was kind of something that I think people sort of have caught up to. And I think some of the RPO stuff, people have sort of, come up with some answers to slow them down. And it's will be interesting to see how that sort of progresses over time.
1: I had never heard that point made before. It's not, I'm, and I'm sure that there are real football guys who have made the point about, you know, the offensive lines that sell the play action better because obviously as a defensive player reacting, your brain is kind of like, neuroplasticized to recognize like, Oh, the offensive lineman is going into this stance. That means it's a pass. The offensive line is going into this stance. That means it's a run. And so, yeah, that, that point about, you know, specifically Shanahan teams, they're so good at those things. And the offensive line is really crucial to the Shanahan system with that play action. Like if you miss an offensive lineman when the offensive line is such a key part of what you do, it ends up being a pretty big deal. You know, they would have a harder time replacing guys, which kind of goes back to my favorite form of football, which is the air raid, right? Um, And the air raid was like kind of born out of like having shitty offensive linemen, right? Like, okay, how do we minimize the fact that we are not as athletic as the other team? And it's, well, we spread these guys out we give seven step drops to the quarterback and we kind of minimize the amount of things that the offensive line even has to do. And I think we have seen the problem specifically with Arizona, right? So they come in, they run this system. We all love it works all the time in, in college, but it hasn't worked as well at the NFL because defenses have gotten so advanced at recognizing and stopping those concepts and mm. oh, you know, of course, uh, NFL defensive players are faster. They're stronger. They're bigger. They, they react. Their reaction time is going to be so much better than you know what what was it a uh, Kentucky Wesleyan then, you know whatever whatever defense right. Kentucky yeah, we Wesleyan know, I mean, whatever yeah right. Um and and I so I guess my big question would be, what are some of the things that you can do to minimize those offensive line problems? Like uh, you know the Eagles had good offensive lines for some of the time when you would have been there, but they also had loads of injuries, right? That was like always the thing is that their offensive line was always injured. And I, I think we are now to a point to where we all in the, the nerd community, we all understand and acknowledge the importance of having a good offensive line. But I will say with no reservation, I literally could not define what makes a good offensive lineman. Like, I don't know what it means to be good. I just know this guy's good. This guy does not get as good of results.
0: So I I think it's 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 definitely tough. And I think it really partly depends on like what is your scheme and like what is the skill set of the quarterback? What is he good at? Like Tom Brady is like legendary at getting the ball out quick. And like if that's what he's capable of doing, like maybe you don't have to invest as much in the offensive line. Like if you're not really running like too many bootleg type concepts because you have Tom Brady, like maybe you're investing in offensive linemen that are more like downhill strong powerful guys but guys that can't move as well like maybe a trent brown for example like he's 380 pounds he can't really run laterally side to side but then all of a sudden you're an offensive lineman for sean McVay or an offensive lineman for kyle shanahan and like you need to be able to do these wide zone concepts and these wide zone play actions so you have to like have a certain skill set to do so and so i think you can kind of see like variations in how teams invest in certain players and then to some degree like hide certain players when necessary like um, like we play Aaron Donald and if it's third down, like you yeah. might have certain mechanics for like, all right, this is how we're setting our protections, but against like a typical look, but Aaron Donald's in the game and like our center is going to Aaron Donald, no matter what, like we're just going to go double to that side, no matter what, and trying to come up with answers to sort of protect offensive linemen. Maybe you have a guy like Brandon Brooks, who's like an elite guard who can handle him on his own. Maybe you have a guy that's not as good, or you have a third string guy in there that needs help. And, these defenses and just from being in defensive meetings for the last few years, like they're looking for the, the, the weak link on the offensive line, like all the time. And in particular, when you see like teams that are, you know, aligning in ways on third downs where they have, you know, maybe five guys up on the line of scrimmage, a lot of times they're doing that to try to create one-on-ones. And they're just like, we know that this pass rusher is going to get a one-on-one against this center or get a one-on-one against this, left tackle and we like the matchup but if we sit there and rush four or rush three like they can do things with double teams they can chip and things like that and um it's a, it's definitely like a cat and mouse game sort of balancing like that act but if you have a really talented offensive line and you have depth there like it makes everything a lot easier
1: right i mean depth on the offensive line that's like yeah. that's like the huge thing like uh specifically the team I root for now, I grew up rooting for the Cowboys. I mean, I still kind of do, but the chiefs have actually, I mean, they learned the lesson last year, right? They didn't have a deep offensive line and they got blown out in the super bowl because they were playing suboptimal players against a really good defensive line. Now they have, I mean, eight guys really, who I think they can, they can consider, you know, starters, they have swing guys, they have guys that can move around on, on the offensive line. And I feel like, I mean, really offensive line is going to end up dictating so much of what happens uh, in in a given NFL game. I mean, we like Patrick Mahomes looked like Drew Locke when he had no time to throw, Mm -hmm. right? They were just putting him on his back every single play. And uh, so offensive line coaching then, I guess, would be an interesting topic, like how much – can analytics impact those things? Cause I would imagine having a really good offensive line coach would be really valuable. Yes. And, I mean, how would you identify that, that like, that could be a market inefficiency, like hiring really good offensive it, line coaches.
0: It is a, it, 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 it's not could be, it absolutely is. And if you look at some of these coaches that have had success, um, you know, for some staffs, like they, they look at the offensive line coach hiring is like almost more important than the defensive coordinator, particularly just because, you know, offense is so important to winning and losing games But the Eagles, we had a guy Jeff Stelton who was like a legendary offensive line coach. He had won national championships at Alabama. Um, He had developed a ton of guys that to to really be, you know, playing at an elite level at the NFL level. And that was he was so valuable and so important to what we were doing. Like Bill Callahan, when Kevin Stefanski hired Bill Callahan, um, who had has been a part of like so many legendary offensive lines. And um, once he hired him, I'm like, they're going to be good because like it's literally that straightforward. If you have an elite offensive line coach. And you have adequate talent. I mean, obviously you'd want to have good talent, but these, these coaches are performing miracles and, uh, and really like if you're not great at, you know, maybe coaching or talent at offensive line, like the whole entire team can kind of unwind pretty quickly. Cause I mean, you're talking about risking injury of your, of your quarterback, or maybe you have a a $12 million a year running back. And the guy like can't, like can't get can't get any yards because people just lose blocks so i think just consistently like i don't think there's too many teams in nfl history that look back at their season and say oh man you know we invested too much in the offensive line this year like that's like never happening like but how many teams have sat there and said you know we spent a ton of money on a running back and it was pointless like that's happens almost every single year so um
1: yeah we got to talk we got to talk about running back contracts right because the eagles actually are are a great example of this they spend they spend the high pick on miles sanders but they got loads of production out of. I mean, they traded for Jai the year uh, that they won the Super Bowl, and what I don't even remember the name of the guy that was better than him. It, w- it might have been Corey Clement on that 2017 team. Corey Clement was
0: there, and then we had Garrett Blount.
1: Garrett Blount. That yeah. was it. Yeah, and so I mean, I would assume that's got to be the greatest disconnect between old school football guys and new school guys. Is they they look at like Miles Sanders. He was a phenomenal player at Penn State, right? Super athletic great receiving the ball. And they look at him and they go, how could we not want to draft this guy? He's going to open up so much for us, you know, passing to the running backs, running swing routes and things. And you're sitting there, you know, in the analytics department, like, look, dude, we can get Samaj P Ryan for free and he can do 97% of what Miles Sanders can do for us. Like, I, I don't even know, like, I feel so strongly that like, there are like two running backs that are worth the money that they get paid. Like for me, it would be like Kamara, you know,
0: Yeah, um, I I get what you're saying. I think uh, with Miles Sanders, at least it was a, uh, you know, it was like a later second round pick. So it wasn't like a premium, like fourth overall or like ninth overall pick type situation. I think that is, in my opinion, and no offense to running backs, I played running back in college and like high school my whole life, but like, we're not that important. Sorry, like, like to spend that early of a pick, you better be an absolute prodigy. And so many guys are like, getting plucked up in the second, third, fourth round undrafted free agents. And these guys are like legitimate starters. Um, and it just, it, it there's, I feel bad for the running backs because really they're just the market's yeah. cool a little bit, but some, but in the last, you know, year or two, you know, some of these guys have got some big contracts, like good for them. I mean, um, I think that, uh, it's definitely, uh, it's tough to kind of like, you know, convince staff members or convince coaches or whoever decision makers that like you know, yes, this player is good. And like, it would be great to have him on our team. But in terms of like the scarce amount of resources we have, let's take care of that first or that first, because if we don't take care of the offensive line. If we have some guard that's like consistently ranking, like getting like 52s as a pro football focus grade every week, like it doesn't matter if we have some, you know, top 10 talent at running back because he's getting tackled as he's, as he's get, like, getting the ball, you know what I mean? So I think just um, in terms of like, uh, like people get so caught up with rushing stats or rushing, you know, touchdowns and things like that. Like, that's meaningless. Like, it. Like, I, I think you look at, like, you know, I think, in, and now that the analytics community is like getting better with the next gen stats and like GPS tracking, like the actual yardage created by the offensive line is so important. Like, and I mean, you people like freaked out recently because you know the Rams lost Cam Akers and like he's a great running back, but like right. the scheme the scheme is and the talent of the offensive line and the fact that they have a solid quarterback and the fact that they have, you know, good receivers, like those, all those variables boost the chances of the run game succeeding. So like realistically, they'll probably put in D'Angelo Henderson or whoever those other guys are and they'll, their production will be like 97% of what it maybe was otherwise. And um, I think, you know, people just, uh, they just really overestimate like the top end of like how much the running back is really doing. And it's never more obvious than when you just see like an offensive line that is not particularly talented and you have some stud running back and they just can't get anywhere. I mean, even Saquon Barkley had some games last year, where or maybe it was two years ago where he had like near zero yards for most of the game, even though everyone knows he's a superstar talent. And it's really just because there was nowhere for him to go.
1: Right. And I mean, Saquon Barkley is like basically the picture boy for this argument is yeah. he, he went in that draft class with Darnold and Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson and Josh Rosen and and like Gettleman in some ways seems like oh you know at least I didn't waste a pick on Josh Rosen or Sam Darnold and so you know he kind of gets to take the, the the Giants fans get to have that but then like also at the same time uh, the cornerback that the Browns took Denzel Ward he's really good um, mm-hmm. like a phenomenal player for them and you know that means they didn't take Lamar Jackson means they didn't take Josh Allen they could have taken both of those guys um, and Barkley yeah. Barkley is every bit as good as they said he was right. Like, I don't think anyone would make the claim that bark. I mean, he's been injured, but that also that happens with running backs right there. The position that has the highest injury rate. Cause they get tackled by 300 pound guys, you know, 15 it times might t- a game.
0: Yeah. It might turn to 300 times in a game as well, or sorry, in a season, but yeah.
1: Yeah. And so it's just like Barkley, other than the injury stuff has been about as good as you could possibly ask him to be. And the giants have been terrible every year he's been on the team. I mean, largely because uh, the Giants suck. Like, uh, and like, I just, I, I'm out on Gettleman. I'm out, like, I think they're an example of an organization that could really do with uh, with an analytical oversight. And it seems that they, are, they don't want to do that for some reason. But yeah, I mean, Barkley is the argument for, he's every, like, I mean, if Barkley was on the Chiefs, how good would he be, right? 2,500 yards yeah. and 20 touchdowns every year. Um, yeah. But running back production just tends to be a function of the team around him less than the running back himself.
0: Yeah, definitely. You aren't seeing anything wrong there,
1: which is, but that would be a very hard conversation for me, you know, coming in with my, my calculator to explain to the front, to, to Doug Peterson, like, look, I, we don't want to take miles Sanders here. We'd rather take uh, this center from Northwestern because he's going to help us win more games.
0: Yeah. I think it it was always kind of a work in progress, particularly on the, uh, um, you know, I think on the front office side of, in terms of just like, whether it's decision-makers or scouts and stuff like they get in love with these guys and they just like, this is my yeah, guy. They that's think. so you human know, risk, like losing their guy and everything. And, um, and then it sort of like throws like position value out the window and stuff like, um, yeah, it's tough. It's um, I think, you know, what, what needs that, what happens is like, you know, if teams sort of adopt these models and succeed, like where, you know, maybe they, they have almost no resources at running back and then they're a good running team or they're a good team. Like, it's really seeing other teams succeed that like motivates teams to change. If that makes sense.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's the NFL is a copycat league. People say that all the time, but it is, Oh, this team started running 11 personnel all the time and winning all these games. Well, we're going to start running 11 personnel. Oh, this team started going for it on fourth downs all the time and winning games. Well, I I guess we need to do that. And of course we got to talk about fourth downs because the Eagles were one of the teams that started really aggressively pushing those edges and that is a very hard thing for football coaches to wrap their mind around, right? That's a very traditional part of football. It's like it's too much of a risk. You put too much pressure on the defense, so on and so forth. Um, and as one of the organizations that was kind of on the forefront of that, like, was that an organizational decision? Was that the coaching staff coming to the analytics team? Like, how did those things come about for the Eagles?
0: Um, I would say that you know our uh, the owner of the team was incredibly pro analytics, and that was a big benefit because you know he right was always supportive of the head coach like hey you know I I believe in this stuff you know I think that you should take a look at it you know you ultimately make your own decisions but I really think you should you know consider some of this stuff and um his I think his presence and you know his mindset of like being supportive of the head coach like hey you know you might do something insanely controversial but you know if it's backed up by numbers like I'm gonna I'm gonna stand up for you like I know you might get crucified in the media and everything if it doesn't work but like I know that like I believe in the numbers like and, and if over time like these these decisions will work out for us and I think Doug as an offensive coach in particular was like cool you mean like I can leave the offense out on the field and like you know try to score more points like every offensive coach is like that and I've definitely noticed like a bias of a lot of defensive coaches that are like I don't want to give up a short field like I'm punting on from the 40 or from the 45 as opposed to some of these offensive guys that are like more looking for opportunities to score and to, you know, lead their offense out on the field. I think that's kind of interesting, but um, I think also it just was partly coach Peterson's personality that like, you know, he, in his first opportunity as a head coach, like, he's like, I want to, I want to make, I want to have no stone unturned and like consider everything. And so um, we spent a lot of time, you know, like meeting with him and like I would, you know, make cutups and show him what some other teams had done or give him examples like, and be as conservative as possible. I'd be like, if we're the worst team in the league at fourth downs and fourth and one, if we're the best team in the league at uh, kicking field goals, if we're the best team in the league at punting, like this still is saying to go for it. And, and like, then I think that sort of mindset of like not being like reckless and like having very conservative assumptions was important to like give him confidence. It's like, actually, like we, like even though we were very aggressive with the Eagles, like there was definitely cases we could have probably been more aggressive from like an analytics perspective, but even the level that we were at was basically the most aggressive in the league. Right. So, um, and ultimately, I think what was really important was uh, when he started going for a bunch of fourth downs, in particular in 2017, is uh, we kind of had, I, I didn't want to just say, like, hey, you know, go for fourth down and just like leave him out to dry. Like, I wanted to give him ideas of like things that he could do schematically. So I like had this really big emphasis on quarterback sneaks and strategies of when to do it, when not to do it. Um, Cause I think that was like a massive inefficiency, particularly because we had a good quarterback that was strong and our offensive line was pretty good at the time. And, you know, we were probably gonna be able to convert a lot of those. So not only just to be like, Hey, you know, the numbers, they go for this fourth and a yard, but like, you know, here are all the scenarios from a scheme perspective that, you know, you're going to convert at a high rate on the quarterback sneaks. And then, so we ended up running a bunch of quarterback sneaks early on in that 2017 season, and we got every single one. And then that gave him so much confidence to continue to go for fourth downs because it was working. So like, yeah, I, football I like coaches
1: it. love it when it works. When when yeah. when the when the the analytics guy says, "Hey, do this," and it works, you're so much more likely to keep going. That's um, Brandon McCarthy. The old, I mean, he pitched for a bunch of teams, but he was on this show a couple of years ago, and he said, as a player, it was so much more effective when the analytics guys. Would would come to you and say you do this really well. You should do this more. Like positive reinforcement works so much better than coming to a coach and say, "Hey, st- stop doing this. You're not good at this. This yeah. doesn't work."
0: Yeah, and I think like me and Coach Peterson had it. We were so tight and had a great relationship that like I he thought he was cool with me. You know, presenting anything to him, and you know like I would be honest. Like after games, I would you know write up situations that came up in our game or write up situations that came up around the league and sort of give him. perspective of maybe from like an analytics look like how you would handle certain situations and um, I always tried to be like you know this is what they did you know maybe in a perfect analytics world it would be different but like it's not that big of a deal like it's not like you completely screwed up like you suck like it, it it was more just like here's a different way of thinking about it like you know just something to think about and ponder and I think just in general his mindset was like oh cool like I'm open to that like or that sounds good like as opposed to I think some of these coaches, they get they get some analytical report for some from some like nerd or whatever. And exactly just, they take it and they take the report and they just put it in a shredder instantly. And they're like, they're like, screw this, like I don't care. Like I've been coaching since 1981 and I know how to like I know how you how to win football games. Um so that was really a credit to Coach Peterson from that standpoint. And I I think that, you know, I really think he's incredibly qualified to get another head job and like, it would be insane for any of these owners to not interview him in this upcoming, you know, head coach cycle after the season. Um, But I I'm about 99% sure he's going to be incredibly pro analytics again, when he gets another opportunity.
1: Yeah, I actually, I actually agree with you. Um, I, I mean, so something I would not have done that Doug did is, like I and I think this is a pretty common opinion is that the Wentz hurt. Well, he was not dealt an easy hand. No one anticipated Wentz playing as poorly as he did last mm-hmm. season. And they're like when a court, when the when the when the starting quarterback is playing poorly, everyone in town wants the backup quarterback, right? It's like it's just you can't win as Doug Peterson. You can't win as Carson Wentz. And honestly, you really couldn't even win as Jalen Hurts. Like Hurts would have had to have come in and. went undefeated in those games. And so anytime hurts struggled, I think he had like a 48% completion percentage or whatever. And I love Jalen hurts. Like I Mm -hmm. got all these, I got Jalen hurts rookie cards, like in sports, I have them on all my dynasty teams. Like I love Jalen hurts, but I, you know, I understood what was happening there. And that was kind of like a no win situation for Mm -hmm. everyone, which sucks for Doug Peterson sucks for Carson Wentz. I mean, Wentz is probably glad that he got traded and kind of got an opportunity for the fresh start. I probably would have went to Hertz pretty early as coach Peterson. And I probably would have just stuck through it with him playing poorly. And I guess the the reason why it would have been difficult to do that though, is Hertz could not play the Carson Wentz offense. They would have had to have redesigned things a lot more running a lot of, you know, QB power stuff that the offensive line, as we were just talking about before would not have been practicing. And, Hertz is not going to come in and make a ton of precision throws and things like that. He's kind of, he kind of is good at, um, you know, creating out of structure.
0: Yeah. So I, I think it, it's, it was a really tough situation. And to be honest, I'm not hundred percent sure of like, was that decision exclusively the head coach? Is that something that's coming from management in part, or like, is it like a joint decision between, you know, management and head coach and ownership. I mean, you are talking about benching your franchise quarterback, who's like, if you bench this guy, you're basically done with him. And you're going to take the largest dead cap, dead salary cap hit in the history of the NFL to move him, which is what I think they did end up doing. Like it's some astronomical sum to trade him. It was like, cool. You traded him for picks, but like, you also took like a 30, whatever million dollar cap hit. And so like that decision, it wasn't just exclusively about like, that independent moment, but from like a big picture standpoint, it, it was de- definitely complicated. I mean, the guy was just starting a contract making $32 million a year. <laughs> like that's a lot of money. And, and I mean, the guy has shown in the past, I want to say 2017, like his quarterback rating by ESPN was like number one in the league. Like he was basically, he was probably likely to win the MVP if he had finished that 2017 season or maybe for sure. Back. And to like, to just completely give up, I think is challenging. I, I, I know it was, um, it was, you know, we were certainly hoping, you know, things would change and things would improve and, you know, uh, just, you know, it, it did ended up not working out, but, um, I, I don't, I don't really know it really how that decision was made totally behind the scenes, but, um, definitely like a really tough decision for just the entire organization and, um. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, you just, you can't envy anyone there. Like you can't envy Wentz. You can't envy the head coach. You can't envy the front office. You can't envy the ownership because the biggest headache for a football organization is quarterback problems. When you have, like, it's, it's certainly a lot different when, for like the Steelers, if Ben Roethlisberger is playing bad, like he's won a Super Bowl, you know, no one, no one is clamoring for uh, Mason Rudolph to come in. Like it's, it's very different. And, you know, people hated that pick of Jalen Hurts at the time, but mm-hmm. there's like no better position to have good cost-controlled labor at than backup quarterback, right? We see the Patriots do this all the time. You know, the Ryan Mallett, Jimmy Garoppolo, uh, Jacoby Brissett. You know, they would do, they would, they would take these quarterbacks all the time, and it ended up being plus value for them. I mean, they got plus value at all those guys. They traded Mallet. Well, did they trade Mallet?
0: I, I'm I can't, not I can't remember. Sure I yeah. Tell, but yeah, I know what you, I get what you're saying for sure. Yeah.
1: Good, good teams spend resources in the draft on backup quarterback, instead of giving chase Daniel $10 million a year, because it gives them an asset and it gives them something to work with. It just right. kind of, and, and on, you could even argue, it is actually working out for the Eagles, right? So they, they have a starting quarterback who they can kind of wish cast on. And I guess we should talk a little bit about Hertz. I mean, No one who listens to this podcast is surprised that I think he's going to be really good. Uh, You know, he was amazing. His career at Alabama gets underrated because he got benched in the big game for Tua, but he was amazing for them for 90% of the snaps he played. He was incredible for Oklahoma. He is um, like, kind of my, my comp for him is actually like Tebow on steroids, where he's like this really good runner not going to, not going to have like a 70% completion rate ever, but he's going to make loads of things happen outside of structure.
0: Yeah. He, I, I mean, I was actually with the Eagles when we had Tebow in camp in 2015. And obviously I was with Hertz last year. Like he's can throw significantly better than Tebow. Oh, for sure. I. I, I Yeah. And he's, he actually is far faster. I think that like, just from like his, his physical mobility and ability to run, um, is, is pretty impressive. And, um, I think in particular, like he was sort of given a tough shot last year, just because he was going behind like the 13th offensive line combination. I mean, some cases it was like the third and fourth string tackles or guards that he's going against. And, um, he jumps into games, like we're playing the Packers and we're getting killed. And like the the pass rush is just teeing off on him. And like, we had other games where we're kind of losing by significant margins and he sort of had to press, to make mm-hmm. things happen and The the receiver group was sort of not having a great season. And um, there was a variety of like variables that were sort of working against them. And then you look at this year where like if the offensive line is healthy, like the Eagles have a good offensive line. If, you know, if uh, the receiving group stays healthy, you know, they have some interesting young guys that, you know, really could be impressive. They got a good tight end group, you know, Miles Sanders is, a, is an explosive running back um, the schedule. They, because we came in last in the division last year, the, the schedule is, relatively easy. Um, not to like jinx anything or anything, cause you know, you never know how things play out, but like, it's, it's a fourth place schedule as opposed to like a first place schedule or anything like that. So, um, and the guy works super hard and, uh, he, he's a, he has great character. And I think, uh, if he does an incredible job, like it would not surprise me at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I, I bet on Jalen hurts to win MVP. I got all these, like, I just, I think he's so good. And I think that um, the, like the press around the Eagles is very negative, which you almost never see before the beginning of the season. Normally yeah. press is very positive, but I mean, that like, also that's just kind of like a Philadelphia thing. Like the press tends to, nah, give to yes. yeah, t- tends to give the team a very hard time. Um, but I mean, yeah, like her, <sighs> this is, I think a market inefficiency and it kind of relates to running backs too, but guys who are like really good in college, it's, it's more rare for them to be bad in the NFL for, than for them to be good. Right. Like guys who are that dominant Heisman trophy candidates, you know, plays in all these big nationally televised games, the college football playoff, like it would be more surprising for him to come out and be bad than it would be for him to come out and be good. Like, that's what we, sh- that should be the yeah, baseline. We I expect. Think, um,
0: have you ever seen like the quarter? I, the football outsiders has like a public like quarterback projection model that they use. Yeah. Year. Yeah. And that, I think that sort of captures that too. Like, you know, a guy who started for a long time, you know, good production in college and they started for a long time. And, you know, there's a lot, there's certain variables that definitely stand out that it's like, all right, this guy checks off all these boxes, like Russell Wilson. I remember, because, you know, my brother actually was a coach at university of Oregon and they played uh R- Russell Wilson in like the Rose bowl at Wisconsin. And the guy killed at NC state and at Wisconsin, like he was so good. And it's like, you know what, he's five, nine, but like, all this guy does is just completely dominate. Yes. And so all of a sudden he's going to walk in the NFL and like not be good. Like, and even that, that's why I think them like with Mac Jones and new England, like uh, yes, he was at Alabama, but like his production and efficiency passing was so, so good. It was so ridiculous that it's like, not that surprising that he walks in new England and they say that he's like the most mature rookie quarterback they've ever had. And he's stepping into these preseason games or they, they, the reports from practices. Like this guy is like, looks like a starter right now. And um, it's like, are we that surprised that a guy who, you know, at the, at the hardest school to start in the NF and NCAA was the starter and basically played like a borderline perfect season. Um, So I think, yeah. And and the fact even like that Jalen was like, I think he started as a freshman
1: at Alabama. He did. Like, Jake, do you realize how was, hard it is he to was Alabama?
0: There's, yeah. like, 1st round guys in Alabama right now that are going to be first-round picks. Like, it's at a variety of positions. I mean, it's, re- it's a factory. Like, I think Alabama, like, probably could hang with, you know, some of the worst teams in the NFL for, like, I don't know. I think they could, depending on, like, the state of the team, like, if it was a really bad quarterback NFL team, like, Alabama might, like, be able to beat them. Like, I don't know. Because <laughs> they have, like, 35 first-round picks on the roster at any one time.
1: I mean, the twenty eighteen Alabama team had uh seven first round picks or, or six first round picks in Herb Smith Jr., right? They had uh they had the quarterbacks, they had uh they had Judy, they had Waddle, they had Smith, they had Ruggs, they had Najee Harris, um mm-hmm. and and Josh Jacobs. They were they were both on the There's team. There's so and, many guys it's and insane.
0: Damian Harris. Yeah, and there probably was other guys too that were like like that was probably just from that class they probably ended up with something like 25 first round picks that were like on that roster at that individual time and maybe they just weren't out playing yet yeah but, incredible but yeah
1: so that that uh, that's a good question then how does the analytics department work with the scouting department for drafts because you know there are guys all the time who have bad college careers who end up getting a little bit overdrafted there are guys who have really good college careers who go, undrafted, right. You know, size, speed, they went to a small school. I mean, there are a million different variables there. What is, what is that relationship like? I'd
0: say, um, you know, for me particularly, like I was really like exclusively focused on, like, I was like basically 50% of my time was with coaching and 50% of my time was like coaching analytics. I didn't really get too involved with, um, you know, college drafting and projections. Like I did a little bit of stuff with like, uh, draft trades and like um you know like uh like draft value charts and like trading down things like that but um just from you know a sort of outsider perspective like it was a lot of the the college football to nfl stuff is like really trying to come up with models to project each position and you know to project like a chance the chances that a player is going to be a you know a uh, a thousand yard receiver or the chances that a player is going to be a pro bowler versus starter versus a, a backup versus get cut and like trying to use as many variables as you have as possible to like really try to have like a legitimate model that you feel good about and like has you know if you test it on like a random sample of players like it ends up you know showing out like and in, in some of the guys that the model likes like end up actually playing good and there's like certain variables that might stand out and i think it it's tough too, particularly because like if a player gets like classified as like an analytics pick and they don't work out, like you'll see scaling people like real quick to like point that guy. Out. Like,
1: oh yeah, hey, didn't like that guy. That was yeah, for like, sure.
0: Like so, like for example, I think one would be um I had heard that uh what was the there was the receiver from Baylor that um Corey Coleman
1: and yes yeah. he was a big time analytics darling that so he was
0: like a little bit of a reach but like you know there were certain variables like his like yards per target or whatever like there was certain variables that were really liked from like analytical models that had him at like a crazy high number and so they took him and it didn't work out and then that's like a big negative for the whole analytics community just because like every team scouts are like harping on that and they're like look the Browns like they, they screwed that up or whatever you know what I mean so it's kind of a uh People are like quick to point out when things don't work out, but then, you know, they they're not very quick to point out when like maybe a guy like Brandon Whedon gets taken in the first round when like models would say like, all right, his age is whatever. Like this guy's projection is like terrible, nothing against the individual player, but then he gets drafted, you know, maybe doesn't live up to his draft height, but then like, you don't really see the the scouting people like taking the same heat, I guess. Right. Um, And I think it's just, I think from whether it's scouts or, you know, coaches or analytical people like i think just accountability for everybody is great and like just to um give you like a great perspective like so i was actually an intern for the cowboys when i was in college and i was like in their scouting department and um like every player that they graded like for the draft like you could just see like what every scout graded on the guy and it was like totally out in the open and completely transparent you know this is this is what this scout thinks this is what this coach thinks and everything and I think it really like enforced like accountability because everybody knew how everyone felt about players. And like, to give you an example, like there was, uh, you know, people crushed the Travis Frederick pick when they took, uh, the center, um, Dallas took the center, Travis Frederick. I think that's his name.
1: Yep. Yeah. I remember, I remember very well
0: that it was a reach and stuff. And like, there was, I think they had like a scout there that had him as like a fifth round pick, but they had this one scout that was like, this guy's an elite player, like clear first round type talent. And, you know, he might've got a hard time at the time, but it turned out like he was on the money and like his credibility in the organization and like the, the ability for the organization to trust that like scout going forward, like jumped tremendously because it ended up being a great pick. And um, I think it was good, though, to kind of like see like, OK, like how like what are your analytics people think on this guy? What are your scouts think on this guy? What are your coaches think? And I think uh, when everyone can see what's going on, there's a lot more like accountability of like if something doesn't work out ultimately like people can be like held a little bit more accountable. Like, Oh yeah. Okay. You know, at the end of the day, maybe this person has trouble evaluating defensive backs or like this person, you know, stood on the table for this quarterback or whatever. And then the player is not good. Like, and I think just from that standpoint, like it, it would, that was like a good model to kind of work off of in my opinion.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that analytics, I would imagine are super helpful for drafting running backs super helpful for drafting wide receivers. Like it's going to highlight lots of guys who are available in round five at running back who are like, yeah, that guy's really good. Going to be mm-hmm. under drafted because he went to a small school. He's a little bit old, you know, things like that. Um, and obviously super like the, we know the most about wide receivers from an analytical perspective. Like we can weigh them versus their teammates. We can try to control <laughs> yeah. for the offense they played in control for the quarterbacks they played with and things like that. I wouldn't even know where to begin again with offensive line. Like how, like, Oh, he, they, they got, they didn't allow any sacks, but uh, the guy played at Georgia and and he played with, he played with a bunch of other 325 pound guys who are also really good. Like, I feel like that, like that just intuitively would make more sense to like, Oh, we have this former offensive lineman who's our offensive line scout. And he gives us really good insight on like, Oh yeah, this guy, I think, Will be really successful in our scheme or this guy won't be really successful in, in our scheme even if he's really good
0: yeah i think there's certain um positions in particular when it's like unless you really played the position or you can coach the position um, and, or there might be limited stats for a position um, at the end of the day like sort of deferring to the uh certain you know like maybe it's like your coach that you believe in like for example like when when i was in Philadelphia, like if Jeff Stouton, the offensive line coach, liked to like he was basically the head offensive scout. scout. Yeah. And like he would stand on the table. Like he stood on the table for this guy they called Big V, we took in like the fifth round, and he ultimately got this huge contract for Detroit. It was like a fifth round pick that uh, Jeff Stoutland loved. And he ultimately gets signed for $10 million a year by Detroit. He like he stood on the table for Jordan Mulata, who was our seventh round pick from Australia. Wouldn't even like know what the heck football was. But like Jeff Stelton really did like a legendary job developing the guy. And like it looks like he's probably going to be the starter for the Eagles at left tackle. And this is a guy who like didn't know what football was a couple of years ago. Like it's incredible. But like, so that's an example. Like at the offensive line position, like he sort of, um, you know, at the end of the day, he just understood way more about offensive linemen than everyone else. And so the organization to some degree sort of like deferred to like how he ranked players or what he thought of them. And it ended up working out great for them because at the end of the day, like you want to trust the subject matter expert, which that's what he was more yes. than else.
1: specialization would really help in scouting as opposed to have, yeah. you know, 10 scouts and you fly them all across the country and they watch 15 different positions and they try to rank yeah. all of those guys. Like uh, it feels like the analytical perspective on scouting would be, you know, you have like a, a linebacker scout and a defensive line scout and an offensive line scout. And then, you know, you have some guys working on an analytical model for those positions to give as much insight, and then kind of like you know a head scout and make sure that that guy has a good relationship and understands what these guys are good at and what they're not so good at. Like, and that is a that's an uncapped area. Like, you could pour as much money into scouting as right. you want, and and the NFL doesn't limit that spending.
0: I think it's it, it's the one tough thing about that is just the structure of the scouting process of like going from school to school and so like the the way that these. Um, NFL teams operate and how the colleges sort of like grant access and things like that to certain scouts is like, they'll have days that like scouts are allowed to come. And like, just from like an ease of of traveling thing, like you might have a Southeast scout that, you know, drives from school to school and the school and like the independent schools will like have availability for scouts on certain days and stuff like that. So it actually having regional guys is like probably the most efficient method from that standpoint. But I think like, you know, having like internal people that like, you know, sit there and grind linebacker tape all day and like whether it's NFL and college guys as like a cross check. Right. And they can really like tell you like, you know, Hey, this guy did this, this guy did that. And then you maybe your regional scout is more just like information gathering, like background stuff. And they're still like developing school uh, skills to like grade players and all that. But um, you know, you ultimately maybe have certain experts on, on certain positions and you can kind of rely on that person or rely on those people when it came to like a certain position drafting.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. So any anything else uh, in inside of the Eagles organization or, or inside of the NFL? Because I know we want to talk a little bit of, about crypto here at uh, the end of the show.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I think. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to just see, you know, how how things turn out this year. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned from the NFL's sake, just from like the fact that all these vaccinated people are getting COVID. And like what that means for like games lost, because like I think. You know, I don't know the testing testing frequency right now because I think that unless they change it, the vaccinated players were not getting tested every single day, and the vac- the un or sorry the unvaccinated people were getting tested every day. The vaccinated people were getting tested like once a week or something like that, and um, you probably are going to get some like outbreaks or some issues or guys popping out. Like I know that there's a bunch of different staff members and random players that are just like coming down with COVID over the last couple of weeks and. I think it might actually happen more than it did last year just because of the testing frequency that's occurring because like last year, the season from June, like, or from like January, like 15th until uh, July 15th until like January, I got my nose swabbed every single morning. It was like mandatory. Like if you don't get your nose swabbed, like they're going to kick you out of work and like, you're not gonna be able to be here for like a week. So, um, but like, because of that, if anybody tested positive, they could just rapidly identify those people, but the way that they're currently doing things, um, there, these vaccinated people that test positive are clearly going to be able to slip through the cracks. Now, I, I know they were talking with the NFLPA about switching that, and I don't want to, don't quote me on that because maybe that that's wrong. And they're, they're now testing those guys every day, Right. but, um, you could all of a sudden see, you know, like maybe they do their weekly test for a vaccinated guy. He tests positive and all of a sudden, they do their contact tracing in the NFL, and they determine that like six defensive backs are out on a Sunday morning, and like you're putting like linebackers at at like corner or something to field the game because you don't want to like forfeit or whatever. Like there there might be some insane situations like that one with Denver last year. No, well, had-
1: I I guarantee we are having a Kendall Hinton game because no team wants to forfeit. No team wants to do yeah. that. I mean, dude, the like, look, the Vikings, bro. They're at. Uh, I saw this is on Monday, and I saw on Saturday. They are 64% vaccinated. Their one vaccinated quarterback is Jake Browning. So we're really looking at a situation where, and and again, remember, unvaccinated players, if they enter in the COVID protocol, they cannot come back in the facility for five days, regardless of if they test positive or not, which was not the same, which was not the same ruling last year. Remember Alvin Kamara had the, the close contact scare, but he tested negative, so they let him play. What's that? That's just not happening this year. Like if you are in the COVID protocols, you're not coming out unless they change the rules. And so we're looking at Jake Browning starting a game. I I,
0: I think my perspective that's different is like, I genuinely think that the vaccinated population testing positive, which is happening pretty frequently with Delta with like the Delta variant, that has got to be the biggest concern for the NFL, because if, if the vaccinations are not preventing COVID infections and but they how do they handle it like realistically like okay like if a guy tests positive but he's vaccinated like are we instantly pulling him like how are we handle it like are we pulling his contact traces or are we not pulling them like it's it might end up being a circus so you know oh, it's it's going to be yeah. a
1: circus it's it's going to be a circus because I I know I I have a friend who plays for the Miami Dolphins
0: mm-hmm. um
1: and Basically because they are, they are the most I believe they're hundred percent. I believe the dolphins are hundred percent. It's possible they're slightly under, but I know early on in the off season, they were the, they were the team with the most vaccinations and their training camp was like, honestly, more back to normal. Like they were still like the positional groups were still in pods, but they were, you know, in the facility every day, working out as a group. Like it was much more like a, a normal off season. And I think they got really used to that, right. Which probably felt great, right. Probably felt great for the players to, it, it felt more normal, felt more like getting ready for a real NFL season We're traveling for the preseason games and everything. But what we have learned is that uh, the new variant of COVID is more transmissible, but if you have the vaccination, you're much less likely to get sick. And so a lot of us out in life, like, you know, we're, we're kind of going about and doing our thing and we might be, Like I, I could, I right now I could, I could test positive for COVID. I don't feel sick. I'm not sick, but I could test positive, um, as like a vaccinated person. Mm -hmm. And I, I honestly think in like an ideal world you would have a hundred percent vaccination and you would kind of have it be like team policy. Like, Oh, you know, Kirk cousins vaccinated. He's not, but tested positive for COVID. Like, what do we want to do? Do we want him to be a practice? Like, you know, what do we want to do? But obviously they have backed themselves into such a position now where no, COVID positive player can yeah, play.
0: Right. And that's, that's, it's going to be tough. But yeah, that's kind of my, my one most interesting thing about the NFL this upcoming year. So we'll see what happens.
1: Uh, yeah. It, and, and again, like, fuck, I don't have any answers. I'm just some guy with opinions on the internet. I don't know what, if the NFL put me in charge of this, I would probably come up with something very similar to what they have done to try and limit exposure, to try and keep people as healthy as possible. But I, I do agree with your position. It's going to be, with how transmissible the Delta variant is, it does seem like we are in line for, you know, all backup offensive linemen in a game, no starting quarterback for a game. The entire safeties room is out for a game. Like, it just, it does feel crazy. Yeah,
0: I mean, even like uh, what I would possibly consider doing just from seeing like some of the video meetings and stuff like that, like there'd be a date in the week where I would say like no contact for, like maybe your last practice is like a morning or something. And from that moment, none of your offensive line are allowed to go anywhere near each other that they would qualify for close contacts. None of your quarterbacks are allowed. Like, so you just do video meetings from that moment on or you put them in some auditorium. Like we would do that with the Eagles. It's like we would have some meetings, like basically in auditoriums for like a position group. So there was no way any of these people because you had to wear these contact tracers. There's no way they could be close enough to each other that they would get like contact traced and pulled out. So that, there's a little bit of strategy there that could be interesting to see how teams sort of employ that.
1: I mean, there. you want to talk about some small edges to be exploited. There definitely would be some edges in terms of like keeping your personnel groupings separate for things like that. Even, and like,
0: it- even like you're flying on a way game plane and like maybe you orient all you because they, they would make us wear the contact tracers on the plane and like you have some crazy flight maps. So like you have all these critical players spread out in certain formats so that they're not, you know, tested if any because you use every team pretty much flies the day before the game. And, like, so if any of those people test positive, say, on a Sunday morning, all their close contacts on the plane would, if they're, like, an away team, they're, they're screwed. Right. So it's, like, orient every single player that's, you know, in some sort of rank order of how important they are. Like, keep them as far away from the other most important players. And like, it's, there's a lot of tactics that are kind of interesting to think about.
1: It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. Like, it sucks that this is even a talking point. I was really looking forward to an NFL season right. devoid of, uh, of COVID talk. What, a, yeah, what a it, giant the, the
0: COVID like Delta chart like is just mind blowing. How low the cases have gotten around like July fourth, yeah, and then now it's like, oh, just kidding. We're at three hundred thousand cases. They're so, like, it's gonna, it's nuts. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it does feel like the CDC maybe jumped the gun a little bit. Like I don't know, I because yeah, I,
0: I don't know. It's it's tough because like, and I, I think a lot of people just are like frustrated with the optics because like, they're like sure. I, get, I get vaccinated, and I'm good to go, and it's like, nope, just kidding. You're wearing a mask until further notice, or like, I think for some of these people, they're like. They feel like it not like I, I get, it. obviously, of course, like the science is changing and there's more data coming out and all these things. But, you know, it's maybe the messaging could have been a little bit different. I don't know. Well,
1: yeah, it could have been a lot different. We've had uh, masks matter. Masks don't matter. Uh, you need to wear your mask inside. You don't need to wear your mask inside. Yeah. Va- masks uh, for vaccinated people, no masks for vaccinated people like it, it has been. And it, this is not a uniquely um, American problem either. Like I right. don't even like it's, this is a this is a worldwide problem but yeah it is it is uh it's it's all very frustrating and i i mean the most frustrating thing is that it feels like none of us really have the answer like we might just it might be 2030 and we might be talking about well just half a million people die every year of coronavirus and it feels like there's nothing we can do it's really too bad yeah it's really
0: dies out but you know i don't know we'll see. yeah
1: yeah you never know all right bitcoin in the nfl locker rooms you gotta you got because I, I do get the sense that NFL players are the types of people who are curious about this. A lot of NFL players go on to be, I mean, there's great businessmen in the NFL. They're also terrible businessmen in the NFL. There's a little bit of both. Um, you know, we have like the Russell Okun stuff taking, you know, Trevor Lawrence, uh, Brady, Brady loves his boomer coin yeah, now, which I, I think love, is hilarious. I, I, I was
0: excited when Brady did that. Cause that's a pretty, yeah,
1: that's pretty, a big one
0: uh, person, but um I'd say this. So uh, I actually got involved when I, was, I graduated college in 2014. But in 2013, I was like studying economics at Dartmouth. And um, a lot of this stuff just didn't make like big picture, like fiat money and just like this idea of central banks and Federal Reserve and, yeah. no gold standard, like all these different countries, you know, setting some countries setting pegs to their currency, you know, hyperinflation in certain places. Like the whole system kind of seemed like it, it was kind of weird. It like didn't really add up. And I heard about Silk Road and I had heard about, like, you know, some of these, like, originally I'd heard about it because all these people were buying fake IDs. Um, yeah. And through Bitcoin was really the easiest way to do it, like, and cover your tracks. And so I sort of, I, I took a look at it like it was going crazy in 2013. Like, I think in 2013, the price started around, like, $5 and it ended near, like, a 1000 So I was, I, I, uh, I had seen the price appreciate a good amount. And I'm like, I want to get in here. Like, I'm, like a lot of people who get involved in crypto, they're just chasing a pump. Like, they just see the price have gone up a huge amount, and they're like, I have FOMO. I was just like, what? Let me get in on this. And it's like, um, so I got in, and then like, there was like this. Do you remember? I don't know how long you've been involved, or whatever. But there was this, this long mount, time,
1: long time. There, there was this
0: Mount Gox crash. Yeah, because like Mt. Gox basically got hacked. And that was like a a little bit after I got in and I'm like, okay, this whole thing's like a scam. Like it took me kind of a while to like build up my confidence back up. And like, I was sort of just like, I didn't have that much money to like invest in everything, but I was like, whenever I had time here and there, I'm like, all right, let me just grab a coin or grab whatever. Um, And then I started spending, I spent it a little bit. Like I, I think I mentioned to you this earlier, but I, at one point I bought FIFA 2015 because like Microsoft was allowing me to buy like gift cards temporarily. Yep. So I bought FIFA 2015 for like 0.25 bitcoin and like I guess that that FIFA 15 game ended up technically costing me like in today's dollars like 12,000 bucks. So like that's that's not the best feeling. I mean whatever it happened, but uh um yeah, I'd say this I,
1: I have that one. I bet 0.4 bitcoin on the Bengals against my favorite team. They lost. They didn't score a touchdown in the first half and it's like that that was back when you, there were like uh bitcoin sports books were really popular. Yeah. yeah that, I think about that one. Like every time I check the price and it's pumping, I like I, it's, it's been five years, six years, maybe. And I still think yeah. about it.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh. so the thing I'll say about this is you have a ton of 22 to like 28 year old guys in the NFL that have just a ridiculous amount of money and they don't really have very many life skills financially yeah. I felt like making these investments to try to like encourage players to save for retirement and like learn about, you know, here's people you want to invest with. Here's people you don't want to invest with things like that. But like a lot of these guys are like, they go from basically having no money for most of their life to just having millions of dollars. And you'll, you see it. Like if you drive through a parking lot at a um, NFL team, like there's Rolls Royces, there's all these custom supercars. There's like, we had a guy with like a McLaren. Like we had people that are getting these like uh they're getting like all these cool wraps on their cars and stuff, but just like spending ridiculous amounts of yep. money with, like vehicles when most people would say like, all right, a vehicle is like one of the worst investments you can make from like a depreciation standpoint and stuff. But these guys, like, it turned almost into like a competition type thing. And I do think, uh, you know, players were like always looking for like some like lucrative opportunity. And sometimes they get like deceived by like some scam person that's like telling them about some real estate thing or whatever. But, um, there definitely with some guys that like you know heard about Bitcoin, they heard about all these people making like millions of dollars. So, like, I want in, like, so we had actually, and I uh I'm not going to give any names or anything like that, but like, we had had a player who bought 400,000 Ripple for under one cent before it went to shortly after to three dollars. And I'm like, dude, you already are like a multi millionaire, and this happened to you, and it was like, yeah, he put of a course, thousand dollars. In. I'm like, you kidding me? And then he goes and buys a thousand Ethereum at seven, so he puts $7,000 in. And right now that would be, I don't know, like, like just a re- like $3.3 3 million or whatever, like not bad in, in return. But um, the other thing too, is like, you know, like the the players are, you know, they're so tight with each other and they talk, like one guy starts getting involved, everyone else kind of starts- Everyone else involved. follows, yeah. Um, I've definitely had a lot of guys that were like, I was trying to help set them up with like Coinbase and things like that, but I'm like, look, this is the most volatile thing. It might go to zero. Please do not blame me at all if this thing goes down. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, please for, do not get mad at me. Um, but I think uh, probably the most interesting thing right now is the whole NFT deals taking off. And I don't know how much you follow NFTs or oh, anything Yeah, big time. I know the other day, uh, like Odell Beckham was on like a podcast showing that he just bought a CryptoPunk. CryptoPunk Odell and then uh uh, so like visa just did their they just announced like they purchased a crypto punk and uh i think the nfts are incredibly interesting and i i think that um i've seen some people make you know a hundred times their money in a week on some of this stuff and it's like i'm i'm sitting here thinking like and from my standpoint like i need i i've you know i was kind of early on in bitcoin early on some other things like the NFT stuff that right now is the most, the best asymmetric opportunity in the world for anybody. But you like have to understand like, yes, there's going to be scams popping up. Yes, it's not going to last forever. Yeah.
1: I mean, there are loads of these that are not going to be able to sell for like 0.01 ETH. But I mean, there yeah. is loads of money to be made in them. I I didn't buy a CryptoPunk for $16,000 at the time. I chose like, I, I had a buddy who was like, hey, do you want to split this with me? I was yeah. like, no, I'm doing I got really deep into Top Shot. Uh, which actually is rebounding a little bit right now, which nice. Is, is nice to see Um, and and made money on that. But like, I, you know, I could have had a, t- a crypto punk, which. Yeah, no, I you know. uh,
0: they, even just little things that like, okay, like if you had participated in this parallel card mint a couple weeks ago or whatever, like, yeah, you might, may have made 400 times your money. And like, even I think like people should just be like joining up with their friends and being like, hey, let's just like split this and let's just dip in on this, dip in on that. Like, because I mean, some of this stuff is incredible, even like, Are you familiar with like Axie Infinity? Yeah. Um, And just like these, I think I'm a little bit more bearish on these uh, NFTs that like don't serve any purpose except being like scarce and like rare. But but I think the ones that actually like tangibly do something or like can earn you some kind of yield or like they are they can get you some kind of profit like in a game, like the Axies where like you you buy the Axies, you can participate in the game, you can earn the AXS tokens and sell them or you can like, you know, You can like whatever, recreate more axes and sell them on the NFT marketplaces. Like, I think that is probably going to be the most lucrative opportunity over the next like 12 to 24 months where you see things like, why is EA Sports not considering going taking like ultimate team? And no, this
1: was, this was the biggest thing I thought of during the whole NFT thing was they should turn FIFA ultimate team into an NFT game where you can earn some token or whatever. Cause every year, you know, I spend like $1,500 on my FIFA ultimate team. Yeah. And so yeah, go ahead what it just goes to nothing and i start over the next year and it's like allow me some way to make these regenerative tokens
0: yeah and even just like um you know like call of duty Warzone, incredibly popular Fortnite, incredibly popular like people are spending tons of money on real skins and like having some kind of rarity or like maybe i'm sure some games will pop up where it's like i mean ultimate team to some degree is basically like a a pay to win type model because like you buy packs and your team's better like Um, maybe it's like, you know, shooting video games where like you buy better guns or you buy certain attachments and they're like, okay, maybe we're doing a deployment of some special scope for guns or whatever. And there's only going to be 600 of them. And and like these places could make so much money so quickly. And I think creating these like virtual economies would be so interesting. Even like world of Warcraft, for example, like, I think you're going to see more and more games like populating, particularly because Axie Infinity
1: well, it would create more interest in the game. It would create, and yeah. they could even make the, the transactions, um, like they could take a percentage of the transactions on yeah. the marketplace and everything. Like, And you already see, like we are definitely already seeing a more corporate adoption of Ethereum than we have ever seen with Bitcoin because it's just a little bit more palatable from a corporate perspective, which, you know, a, a Bitcoin maxi would say is bad, right? Yeah. They'd be like, we we don't want that. We don't want the corporations with their hand in our, our honeypot.
0: Um no, I think but the amount of money these corporations and you know big funds have, like people don't realize like talking about like possibly like trillions of dollars getting invested in some of these things. So um I think the interesting thing is like you know, I Ethereum, like I love it and it's amazing. But it keeps like running into this situation where like it's it's so good that it just gets like over capacity even after like the the recent like change there. At least now like they're burning ETH every time that like you know things are crazy, but Every single day, like OpenSea is like jamming up the network temporarily when they do some like they do some NFT drop or whatever. And people are and just you
1: can't it. even send it's a transaction. And it's
0: like, all right, I don't want to pen hundred, I don't want to spend like $160 to mint something. And I and you see like competitors like like Binance Smart Chain or, or even Solana, like I was messing around a little bit with like Solana recently just because um they're doing some NFT mints and it's like basically five cents to mint something there and like yes it's not as great as ethereum where it's like not truly decentralized and whatnot but um like you're not like automatically like over invested and like it's you'll you'll probably run into more scenarios where like it might be plus ev to mint to like mint a new nft as opposed to like ethereum like you need to pay the mint price and you need to pay the the gas fee and like sometimes like these if, if you minted something and it kind of ends up not being popular or people not interested in it, like you kind of end up throwing a lot of money down the drain. So.
1: Yeah, I, I would not, uh, I, I'm definitely anti Solano anti anti uh, ADA. Like the only, the only two, well,
0: I did, not say, I did not say Cardano. No Cardano. Yeah. Dude.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Come uh, on. I, 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 the only two, the, okay, this is not 100% true because I have like some airdrop tokens and some dust on my old wallet and stuff. Like I, like 2015, 2016, I was definitely buying altcoins, but the only, I only ever would tell someone to buy Bitcoin or, or yeah. ETH.
0: Yeah. I'd say, um, yeah. Like I'm not big into Solana, but I have seen enough smart people suggest, like, you know, take a look at this. And they've done some, they have some, you know, products like in terms of like browser extensions and like wallets that are like incredibly friendly. And the transactions are so rapidly fast and so cheap that like, it definitely caught my eye and I'm like, you know, I want to kind of semi hedge against Ethereum because when Ethereum sort of gets, um, you know, over congested, some of these other chains start popping off pretty good. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to nibble a little bit on different ones, but, um, yeah. It's, it's such an interesting space. And like, I really think particularly with like the Odell Beckham CryptoPunk thing and v and stuff like that, like you're going to see more players getting involved in the NFT space. And for sure. And it's going to like turn into like a bragging rights thing. Like, Oh, I have three crypto punks or like, I have 17 pudgy penguins. Like I, I can't even get over the fact that, I don't know if you've seen the pudgy. Penguins. Oh, I've
1: seen, I've seen them all. Yeah. like Cause my, my um, timeline is full of people very deep in the NFT streets.
0: Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, uh, so I, I, a, I got a Super Bowl ring when we won the Super Bowl and stuff like that. And I'm like, what timeline is it that I right now would rather have a JPEG of a CryptoPunk than my Super Bowl ring? <laughs> like the floor price of like of a CryptoPunk like exceeded like $200,000 today, I think. And I'm like, should I just like try to offer up my ring for like a CryptoPunk? Like, yes, like,
1: yes. You should trade your Super Bowl I think, ring I think for a Punk. If
0: I offered it, even though the ring is, has like $50,000 worth of diamonds, they no. would laugh at me. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like... Maybe you know, like CryptoPunks is out of my class, and I have to you know offer it for some pudgy penguins or like offer it for some like apes or something. Like this is this is complete insanity. But like you know what, these are I don't know. You listen to some of these bulls on NFTs. They're like, yeah, don't worry, you know, NFT uh, CryptoPunks floor is going to be like twenty million soon. So like, who knows?
1: Because they're it's going to be such a status symbol and the richest. I I am very bearish on a huge chunk of NFT projects. I think it's super oversaturated. And I think it's a good trading opportunity right now for a lot of the people who are in on it. Um, And, and I have not been one of those people who've been able to like mint everything and keep up with floor prices and everything. So I just haven't bothered, but like, I am super bullish on crypto punks. Like I, I don't think you could buy a a bad crypto punk right Um, now. I'm
0: with you on just like bearish on the other stupid animal coins that just do nothing or like animal NFTs. But really that field of like, you know, gaming type NFTs, like I'm not missing the next Axie Infinity. Like if I have to pay a premium for it, like I'm that Axie Infinity was the the AXS token was 14 cents back in like November, or December. And it's like $80 right now. Like that's you know, generational wealth for your family. <laughs> like, yep that so like I'm I'm gonna be nibbling on that stuff for sure. And I think just in general, as people kind of wake up to some of these scammy and like pointless things, they're gonna see like, all right, how is this NFT, you know, make me money, or how, how does it like have some purpose that beyond just like looking cool? Yeah, and like yeah. that's those are the ones that I like like to be involved with.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was the that is like um, so like I don't know if you follow top shot at all, but like it was this yeah, yeah. really amazing thing in february and march and then basically it's been like on this slow decline since then in terms of market cap and of interest but they've actually added loads of utility to the tokens right like they they've done like in-person experiences you know finals games like they had like a summer league thing where you actually got like a moment in person and people have gotten much more interested in the platform as a result of that stuff which like i I feel really good about because you know my thing was like i actually think this is like a multi-billion dollar idea even if i lost on some of the things i own
0: yeah and i don't know if after this podcast that i'm going to start getting some dms of people offering some nft for ring trades and like you know what send them my way and i'll take a look at it (laughs) yeah he's a bad man like nine figure wealth guy wants that wants a super bowl ring and he doesn't he already has 36 crypto punks like hey bro let's talk like i don't know
1: (laughs) peter peter jennings buddy if you're listening to this punk for a super bowl ring trade make it happen it's on the table um all right, dude, that was great. Uh, so I, I, actually wanted to end it here. What, what made you decide to, to get on Twitter and to start, uh, entering, entering in these, these streets?
0: Um, so I, you know, as, as an NFL employee, like I never was involved with Twitter. Like I would, maybe I would have like an anonymous account and follow some just like Adam Schefter and some just general stuff. But like though, at least when I had started in the league, it was like semi considered like unprofessional to be like involved in, and like you really couldn't say anything publicly at all and for me to kind of take a break like i'm very fortunate because of the crypto space like i'm um, you know i'm doing a little bit of consulting stuff for some teams you know helping them out with like analytical type stuff but um i really like the crypto stuff and like crypto has been very good to me and even just some of the nft stuff i wanted to get on crypto just i wanted to get on twitter just to keep up with everything that's going on because it is absolute madness it's like uh I, I'm just really interested in it. And I also I, I wanted to kind of connect with a lot of people, you know, there, I guess there are people that are interesting, interested in what I had to say from like a football analytics standpoint. And, um, you know, I, I can see some people like turning some careers out of, you know,
1: for sure
0: presence and talking about analytics. And, um, you know, even just like, I mean, I've reached out to a few people and just sort of like thank them. And I'm like, Hey man, you you did this analysis and like I showed that to Coach Peterson and like we basically used it in a game and like you never got any credit for it or like I never even talked to you or anything and like just sort of like building some connections with some really like smart people and um, yeah I don't I think it it can't hurt and I'm having fun with it I mean it's it's cool like this was awesome to get on here and uh, I definitely want to connect with some more crypto people maybe some crypto NFL related hybrids yeah so, I
1: mean uh, we we gotta. Maybe we'll have you on with, we got, we got Patrick Laird, our, our buddy who came on the show. We got him to buy Bitcoin he, for the first time. Back. Yeah. Yeah. He, Dolphins yeah. running back. Uh, yeah. We got, we got him to buy a hundred bucks of Bitcoin on the show back. I mean, whenever it was a couple months yeah. ago. Yeah. So we, we got him to take the plunge for the first time.
0: One thing I'll say uh, for people that if they, if they're just like anti-crypto or whatever, they sh- Virtually, everybody should download this thing called like, it's like the Try Lolly app. Do you know, do you know about yeah, that? Yeah.
1: yeah, you get free Bitcoin. And you
0: literally just get paid back in crypto for doing not like for just shopping on stuff you already were doing. Every day, they let you like press this claim button and you can like, you know, collect some very small amount of Bitcoin. But there's like no risk. And all it does is expose you to like just possibly getting like boatloads of Bitcoin for free. Um, and like, I, I used it a couple of years ago and I forgot about it. I like logged into my account recently and like the price had 10 X. So I like, I had like 40 bucks in there and now it's like 400. I'm like, cool. Like I got that money for free. Like, so for people that are like, you know, I don't want to spend any money. This is too risky. Like just download that app on your phone or on like your browser extension or whatever, and go to some website you already shop at and you might get 4%, 5% back, cash back in, in Bitcoin for doing nothing for something you already were going to do. So I just think it's like, there's no risk really there. And it's just something that you could kind of get your feet wet.
1: Yeah. That's actually great advice. I kind of even forgot about, like, I, I don't think I've ever even talked about that app on the show before, but yeah, that, I mean, I like whenever I want to buy something big, like uh, I I'm like looking at like mattresses right now mm-hmm. and like, yeah, like if I'm going to spend $2,000 on something, I'm definitely buying it through that so I can get, you know, the 5% back in Bitcoin or whatever. Right. And you can even get, you can get double points because you can use your credit card. So you get, you get the credit card points and you get the Bitcoin back. Life's all about the small edges, buddy.
0: Absolutely. That's trying to find plus EV opportunities.
1: Yeah. All right, everyone uh, you can follow Ryan on Twitter at Paganetti. Ryan, I'll have his handle in here and everything for you to go follow him. And uh, he's got the laser eyes avatar. Uh, I imagine this will probably not be the the last podcast that he does. So be able to, Keep up with him there, and uh, we'll be back next week.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.